Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Recently, some friends of mine were renovating their home, and their renovations involved putting a little kitchenette in their basement. And their contractor told them that the code for plumbing inspections was about to change, and so when they were picking the sink that they would install, they decided to pick one that would meet the new code. Except when the inspector came to do the inspections, it was still a few weeks before the new code went into place. So you can see where this is going. The inspector said the sink didn't pass because it didn't meet the current code. It met the new code, the better, higher one, but not the one that was only good for another couple of weeks. So they said, can, can you just come back in a few weeks and redo the inspection then? And no luck, he said. So they had to rip out what was there and install a new sink that met the current code, and they passed inspection. Now, the purpose of building codes and inspections is to ensure that buildings are functional and safe. So there are rules and standards and principles that are defined, and those are used to determine the functionality and safety of buildings. And generally, this is a good thing. But sometimes, like in the case of my friend's basement, the principles end up becoming more important than the end that they were intended to achieve. So my friends were left with the construction serving the principles instead of the principles serving the construction. So we have all heard stories like this, and we roll our eyes when they have to do with construction inspections. But the thing is, I think we often do something similar in our relationship with God. We read the Bible like it's building code, a book of rules and standards and principles that if we follow them, we'll ensure a good and faithful life. But we become so focused on the code that we lose sight of the thing that the code was intended to create, which is a rich and deep living faith, a life lived with the God who is revealed in the Bible. During this season of Lent, we are looking at some different ways that we relate to God and how those ways can get in the way of the kind of relationship that God really wants to have with us, which is a life lived with God. In his book called With, Sky Jathani describes this building code version of relating to God as life over God. And this happens when, in his words, we reduce faith to principles, divine laws, and applicable instructions, and then end up putting those things over God himself. And that is pretty much what we see Moses doing in our reading from Numbers this morning. The Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. They've been freed from slavery back in Egypt, but they're not yet able to enter the promised land. And they're at a place called Meribah in the wilderness of Zin, and they don't have any water. 
So they are doing their usual routine, which is they're complaining to Moses about the accommodations. They are blaming him for leading them to this place where, when they'd have been better off staying back in slavery in Egypt. So Moses and his brother Aaron go into the tent of meeting, which is like their portable temple, to ask God what they should do. And God says, I want you to take the staff. This is the staff that God had caused to turn into a snake as a sign when God called Moses to lead the Israelites. He says, take that staff, gather everyone together, go up to the rock, and tell the rock to give them water. Now, if this sounds a little bit familiar to you, this story, it would have sounded familiar to the Israelites, too. Because back in Exodus chapter 17, they had been in the same region, and pretty much the same thing had happened. There wasn't any water. They complained to Moses. Moses complained to God. God told Moses to take his staff, gather everyone together, go up to the rock, strike the rock with his staff, and water would flow out of the rock which Moses did, and the water did. So this time, Moses hears God's instructions. Take your staff, gather the people, go up to the rock. And he thinks, yep, yeah, yeah, I know how this works. So he does all of this. He takes his staff, and he strikes the rock twice this time, maybe an extra one for dramatic effect. And the water flows from the rock. But there's a problem which is, that's not what God told Moses to do. God didn't say, take your staff and strike the rock. God said, take your staff and tell the rock to give them water. This time, all Moses was supposed to do was speak. There was no staff striking required. So why did he do it then? Well, think about the situation that Moses was in. He was surrounded by a whole bunch of cranky, thirsty, angry people who had decided that all of their problems were his fault. And he'd been in this situation before. He knew what worked. He knew the formula, which is miraculous staff plus rock equals miraculous water. So can we really blame Moses for following the formula and doing what he knew worked? And in a way, it worked this time, too. Water did flow from the rock abundantly. But God makes clear to Moses that the water was God's gracious gift to the Israelites, despite Moses' rock striking, and not because of it. Yes, the Israelites got their water, But Moses and Aaron had failed to believe God. And because they didn't believe God, because, as God says to them, they didn't show my holiness before the eyes of the Israelites, God declares that Moses and Aaron won't be able to enter the promised land with the people. Now, this can seem like a rather harsh punishment. So what if they struck the rock instead of talking to it? But the key is the charge that God lays against them. He says Moses and Aaron didn't show God's holiness before the eyes of the Israelites. 
The miracle of the water coming from the rock was supposed to point the people toward God. But by doing it on their own terms, by deciding to rely on past performance rather than on God's present instructions, Moses and Aaron were actually pointing people towards themselves. They'd even said to the Israelites, Shall we bring water for you from this rock? Not God, we. Not only had Moses and Aaron chosen this rule from the past over God's present instructions, but they'd even come to think that they were the ones who had the power to make the miracle happen. They had reduced their faith in God's miraculous power to a principle. And once they had done that, they could leave God by the wayside. This is exactly what Sky Jathani says is wrong with the life over God posture. He writes, God can be set aside while we remain in control of our lives. He may be praised, thanked, and worshipped for giving us his wise precepts for life, but God's present participation is altogether optional. And I am sorry to have to say it, but Moses and Aaron are not the only ones who are susceptible to living life over God. We do it all the time. So as I mentioned earlier, we do it when we approach the Bible like an instruction book for life, like it's an owner's manual for being human. If you have ever gone to a Christian bookstore or to the Christian section of a Barnes and Noble, I guarantee you that you have seen books that represent this life over God way of reading the Bible. So they're the kind of books that will give you seven principles for biblical parenting or a diet plan that is based on scripture or a step-by-step guide to managing your money God's way. There's nothing wrong, hear me, with wanting the ways that we parent or care for our bodies or manage our money, with wanting those to be informed by our faith. And the Bible is important, and our reading of it should inform how we live our lives. But when we approach the Bible only or even just primarily as a source of principles by which we can live our life, then we're actually reducing the Bible's importance and not honoring it. We are settling for letting the Bible shape our lives instead of letting the Bible point us toward God and letting God shape our lives. To be sure, the Bible in the Bible, God gives us instructions and guidelines and even some pretty clear rules up here for how God's people ought to live. But all of those instructions and guidelines and rules are secondary. God's relationship with his people is what is primary. So if we pursue the principles and neglect the relationship then we have missed the point of the Bible altogether. Because the Bible is first and last 
the story of God's desire to be with his people and of what God does to open the way so that his people can be with him. So we can live life over God when we approach the Bible as a source of principles that we apply to the various areas of our life. What's interesting is that we can also live life over God when we do more or less the opposite, which is when we take principles that we find in the world at large and apply them to our spiritual lives. And here I will admit that churches, including pastors, are among the worst offenders at this. So we will borrow a page from corporate America and conclude that growth, whether it's in people or dollars or both, is the primary sign of a successful church. Or we will try to apply leadership principles from the business world to the way we run our churches. And we look for surefire, foolproof ways to effectively meet whatever goals we have set for our ministry. Now, I am a firm believer that all truth is God's truth, and we should look for wisdom wherever we can find it. So just because an insight came from a business leader and not from a bishop doesn't mean it might not be helpful. But when we approach ministry from this life-over-God orientation, we run into two problems. The first is that we end up taking on for ourselves a far greater burden of responsibility than God ever intends. Because the problem with running a church or a ministry according to surefire or foolproof ministries or principles is that the outcome depends on us executing the principles correctly. So if the children's ministry isn't growing or the congregation isn't pumping out greater and greater giving numbers, then it must be because we're doing something wrong. We haven't hit the right formula yet. We're not implementing it correctly. So we redouble our efforts, we go to another conference, we read another book, we listen to another podcast, hoping that we will find the one key that will unlock ministry success. And before we know it, we are burnt out and exhausted. But there's more than exhaustion that's a problem in the life over God approach to church. The bigger problem with this approach is that it doesn't leave much, if any, room for God to be in charge. God, whose ideas of success tend to look pretty much opposite of ours. God, whose ways are not our ways. God, who invites us not to certainty, but to trust. Sky Jathani says a friend once asked him, If God's spirit left your church, would anyone notice? A life over God church would keep on humming along, doggedly following its principles long after the Holy Spirit had left the building. A life over God church could be extraordinarily successful, all while failing to be faithful. And at the end of the day, 
The problem with a life that is lived over God, whether it is in our churches or in our families or any other context, is that it is a life that misses out on the presence and the love and the grace of God himself. It's not that God isn't there. It's that we're so focused on following the rules that we don't notice him. Which is exactly what Jesus is telling the Jewish religious leaders in our reading from John's Gospel. It can sound a little bit cryptic in the ESV translation that we read, so I want to read part of you from part of it for you from the message version. Because I think that version captures Jesus' meaning in a way that's a lot more accessible for us. So this is what Jesus says in the message. My purpose is not to get your vote and not to appeal to mere human testimony. I'm speaking to you this way so that you will be saved. It's the work the Father gave me to complete. These very tasks, as I go about completing them, confirm that the Father, in fact, sent me. The Father who sent me confirmed me, and you missed it. You never heard his voice. You never saw his appearance. There is nothing left in your memory of his message because you did not take his messenger seriously. You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am, standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. Remember, this is the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to. You have your heads in your Bibles, he tells them, because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you are missing the forest for the trees. And if that is not a description of life over God, I don't know what is. And the result is truly tragic. Because Jesus, the one they have stuck their heads in their Bibles to try to find, Jesus is standing right in front of them and they are not willing to receive the very life they say they want. The life they say they want is a life with God, but they can't receive it if they're stuck in a life over God. The good news is that the life that those religious leaders wanted actually was available to them, and it's available to us too. It is life with God, and it is available because Jesus came, because Jesus is here because Jesus is with us. And so when we let go of the principles and the rules and the concepts, we can grab on to God himself instead. And when we do that, we will experience the love and the peace and even the joy that come when we live life with God. A few years ago, I spent several Saturday mornings taking flying trapeze lessons. Trapeze, it's true. There is a trapeze school down by the Navy Yard in D.C. 
And what happens in a trapeze class is that you get harnessed up and you get clipped into safety lines and then you climb a ladder up to a platform about 30 feet in the air where an instructor holds you as you grab onto the trapeze and then another instructor who's on the ground who's holding your safety lines counts off and you jump. And with each swing, the instructor tells you exactly what your next move is so that by the end of actually your first lesson, you have learned how to hang upside down by your knees from the trapeze. Which is cool in and of itself, but the really cool part comes next, which is that once the instructors are satisfied that you've got that move, your knee hang down, then you're ready to try the catch. And that is when another actual trapeze artist gets on the other trapeze, And if everything goes right, that person catches you in midair as you let go of the trapeze that you've been hanging by your knees from. Now, in the world of flying trapeze, it is the flyer whose part looks really cool, who gets the applause, who seems the most impressive. But the secret is that the flyer's success is all in the catcher's hands, quite literally. The catcher is the one who calls the timing and who calls each move. And it doesn't matter how you've practiced it or how you think it should go or what you think the timing should be. All that matters is what the catcher says. And as the flyer, your job is just to listen to the catcher. And it's the catcher's job to catch you, which is actually really, really important because if you're the flyer, You have to wait until the catcher grabs onto your arm before you grab onto theirs. Otherwise, you can both get really hurt. So even though the flyer's job looks the coolest, really the flyer's job is just to let themselves get caught. It's the catcher who does the work. And when the catcher catches and the flyer gets caught, Well, I can say it is a pretty amazing experience. There is a reason that the trapeze school's motto is forget fear, worry about the addiction. It turns out that the flying trapeze is a pretty good metaphor for living life with God. Living life with God is about loosening our chokehold on the theories and the rules and the principles and listening instead for God's voice. Living life with God is about trusting God enough to let go and then to let God catch us, to let ourselves be caught. And when we do that, When we live life with God, that is when we can really fly. Thanks be to God.